Today on Cross Defense, we're looking at CFW Walther's 10 Theses on the Pastoral Office with proof from God's Word and the corresponding public confession of the church based on that Word of God. During this time of year, congregations are preparing for new lay leaders to step into their offices. What sets the pastoral office apart from them? Usually, the pastor gets paid and the laity doesn't. Is that the only difference? Well, no. Even if your pastor didn't get paid, his office is different from all the others. Stay tuned to find out just how different. Mercedes wrote in regarding last week's episode saying, regarding your Christian man in the arena, you forgot to mention 1 Peter 3.15 quote, with meekness and fear, or, quote, with gentleness and respect, depending on how you render that, right? Well, stick around at the end of the show to hear my reply to Mercedes, and thank you, Mercedes, for writing in. Welcome to Cross Defense, my friends. This is the show that aims to equip the mind, excite the imagination, and comfort the soul, and aims to do all of that with God's Word. I'm your host, Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm the pastor of St. Mark Lutheran Church, way out here on the Lost Coast in Ferndale, California, where, get this, my friends, get this, our pastor, that'd be me, is not just some professional church worker that we pay to do things on our behalf, like an employee or something, but no, like your pastor. Wherever you are being served by God's man, he was sent, I was sent by God to teach his word and to administer his sacraments. True enough, it's a true story, I promise. If during the course of the show you want to send in your comments, your questions, or your bits of biblical brilliance, you can do so by going to stmarksferndale.com slash contact, S-T-M-A-R-K-S, ferndale.com slash contact. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're feeling really peppy and you want to do it, you can go ahead and share this episode or the show in general with a friend, especially a friend who doesn't understand the difference or the uniqueness of the pastoral office regarding that office and other offices in the church. My friends, churches all across the Senate have elected or are electing new lay leaders to serve in various capacities during this time of year. It's it's that time of year that we're at. And before they're installed into their offices, which is presumably probably the first Sunday in January, I thought it would be a good time to reflect on the office of pastor in relation to the congregation and especially the lay leaders, those lay positions, those lay offices who assist the pastor. As per our custom on this show, we're going to sit at the feet of a dead Lutheran theologian to do that. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, Concordia Publishing House has a very useful book for pastors. It's called The Pastoral Care Companion. You've probably seen your pastor carrying it around. In the front of it, there's a section labeled Pastor's Prayers of Preparation. And under the category called Specific Pastoral Acts, we find a prayer titled, Prayer for the Leadership of the Congregation. Listen to this prayer, my friends. Listen to how it goes. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would at all times fill the offices of this congregation and its societies with upright, honest, and sincere men and women who have the welfare of their congregation at heart and are able to help me 
in my office with their counsel and their deeds. Unite their hearts with me in love for the truth and give them the spirit of prayer for me and for this congregation so that we may in unity and harmony hallow your name and further your kingdom in this place and to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And yes, amen, it is true. This prayer is an instructive prayer, just as it is a needed prayer in every congregation across the world. For today's purposes, dear saints, it instructs us on the relationship between pastor and congregation, with an emphasis on the relationship between pastor and the lay leaders of the congregation. But what do you know about your, your pastor's office, the office that pastor holds? I hope you know that it's a unique office. Maybe you're familiar with James 3.1. It's a poignant passage about the pastoral office. Not many of you should become teachers, it says, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is a weight to the pastoral office that doesn't exist in the other offices. The pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus as well, might be familiar to you as, as you consider the, the, the role of the pastor and his relationship with the people. 1 Timothy 4 fills my mind in this age of anti-clericalism compounded by internet influencers, etc. ad nauseum. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, probably found on TikTok through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared or found at your local Bethel school of spiritual awakening Jediism or whatever, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, Paul talking to Timothy, young pastor Timothy, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while Bodily training is of some value. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad I got the, the garage gym set up. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. For the present life and for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And here you go, my friends. Command and teach these things, Pastor Timothy. Let no one despise you for your youth, 
but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Even if you are a young pastor, let's say, let's say you're you're an elderly man in your congregation and your pastor is straight from the seminary. Maybe you're in your 80s and he's what, 26? <laughs> well, we have word to say, follow his example, even though, even though you've lived a full life and you're looking at this young whippersnapper and you think, what does he have to teach me? Well, if he is setting the commands and the teachings of God before him, he may just have a lot to teach you, old timer. As he no doubt recognizes you have a lot to teach him. Your pastor commands things and teaches things. Did you get that? Did you catch that? What things? The things preserved in Scripture, God's things, God's word, the law and the gospel. St. Paul didn't say suggest and allude to these things. No, he said command them and teach them. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Don't neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Huh. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The pastoral office is one of word and sacrament ministry into which a man is called and into which he is to immerse himself for the sake of the congregation quote so that all may see your progress pastor yes pastors live in a fishbowl that's part of the job people look at us and they they are to see us as influencers indeed well before that term was a trendy buzzword we are role models we are to be examples as the apostles are examples. Yes, your pastor is supposed to be your role model, dear Christian. He is the influencer that you should be following, not just on Instagram, but in real life. That's part of the office. And if his actions and his behavior and his teachings contradict the, the influencer you're picking up on an Instagram or YouTube or TikTok or whatever, one of them's right, one of them's got to be wrong. Ditch the guy online. That's my advice to you. Because your pastor's influence on your life, his, his understanding that he is living in a way that will benefit you if you're watching him, that's a heavy burden, and he bears it consciously. And that's why a layman can come in and just do this and do that, footloose and fancy free. But your pastor works slowly, carefully, cumbersomely, aware of each step he takes, understanding that, that Johnny jump into it doesn't, doesn't have to, to think about these things, isn't called to think about these things, that isn't, he's not aware that his actions have consequences in the same way your pastor is aware that his actions, his actions do have consequences. And this is what St. Paul teaches in Romans 15.1, isn't it? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Not to please ourselves. <laughs> no. 
No, this certainly, it, it goes beyond pastor, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It goes beyond the pastoral office, but I'm sure you understand that pastors, by the time they become pastors, even at the, the young age of 26, ought to be considered strong and not weak. And so we take a lot of lumps, my friends. Your pastor takes a lot of lumps for you and for your congregation. Lumps he'll never bring up because he understands it's part of the work he's been called to do. He keeps a close, close watch on himself and on his teaching, even if you don't. Because he knows that if he persists in this, his diligence is an instrument of the Holy Spirit that not only benefits him, but you. So show your pastor some love, eh? Truly, show him some love. Everything he does is for you and your congregation. That is, if he's being faithful, even if you can't tell, even if he doesn't give you the full story because it's really none of your business when he gives you the guidance he gives you, knowing that he has the entire flock to be considering. You haven't stopped to think about how his, his verbal responses or even his model guidance are, are impacting others besides just you because we tend to just think about our interaction with one another, but the pastor is constantly thinking about the flock's interaction. Before you disregard his wisdom, which is drawn from Scripture and Scripture alone as something you don't like and therefore worthless, consider the office that is coming from, not the man, but the office. <laughs> I especially mean that for my people because when they consider the man, they got a fool for a pastor. They got Tyrell Bramwell. They got a bumbling idiot. They got a broken man worth nothing outside of Christ. But by some weird, <laughs> mysterious way of God, I'm in the office of pastor. And so now, let's talk about that office, my friends. Our trusty, dead Lutheran theologian of the day is Reverend C.F.W. Walther, one of our favorites. And he has 10 theses regarding the pastoral office. You can find them in Concordia Publishing House's The Church and the Office of the Ministry, edited by current sitting president, Reverend Matthew Harrison, president of the LCMS. And uh, it's a great study edition of this work, so I highly recommend you pick up a copy if you don't have a copy. And uh, let's get into this. So thesis one, the holy preaching office, or the pastoral office, is an office distinct from the office of priest, which all believers have. Okay, so there we go right away. You, all believers, you included, are a priest. You hold the office of priest. So does your pastor. But by virtue of being a pastor, he also holds a distinct office. Now let's look into the, uh, the proofs from God's word. What proof from scripture do we have to back this up? And the study edition provides a wonderful um, text that goes along with this. And it says the following, although Holy Scripture attests that all believing Christians are priests, 1 Peter 2.9, Revelation 1.6, and Revelation 5.10, at the same time, it teaches very expressly that in the church, there is an office to teach, feed, and rule, which Christians, by virtue of their general Christian calling, do not possess. For thus it is written, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, 
1 Corinthians 12, 29. Again, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Romans 10, 15. And then, of course, James 3, 1, which we uh, referenced earlier in the show already, that not all should be teachers because they will be judged stricter, more strictly, however you say that. And this is why we take as our own the words of Article 14 of the Augsburg Confession, which is the uh, portion here included under this thesis that is part of the witness of the church in its public confession, which says, concerning church government, it's taught that no one should publicly teach or preach in the church or administer the sacraments without an ordered call. Hmm, okay. And there you have it, my friends. That's thesis one. How about thesis two? The preaching office or the pastoral office is not a human institution, but an office that God himself has established. That God himself has established. Well, what does the proof from God's word have to say about this? The fact that the holy preaching office or the office of the New Testament is not a human institution or an ecclesiastical contrivance but a work of divine wisdom and an institution of God himself is evident from the following. One, from the foretelling of the prophets that God himself would give to the church of the new covenant, pastors and teachers. Quote, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Psalm 68, 11. I will give you shepherds, after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 3.15. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the teacher of righteousness. Joel 2.23. The divine institution of the New Testament office is evident, too, from the call of the holy apostles into the teaching office by the Son of God, according to Matthew 10. And according to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Luke 9, 1 to 10, Mark 16, 15, John 20, 21 to 23, 21, 15 to 17, feed my sheep, as well as from the call of the 70 disciples in Luke 10, 1 to 22. And finally, the divine character of the evangelical office of the church is evident three from all passages in which those called immediately are presented as having been called by God himself. Quote, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. And, and God has appointed in the church First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracle workers, then those who have gifts of healing, helpers, administrators, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and 29. He, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Ephesians 4.11. Thus, the divine institution of the preaching office is evident from the fact that four, the holy apostles, 
place themselves on an equal footing with the servants of the church who were called immediately as their co-laborers in the office. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, 1 Peter 5.1. Compare also 2 John 1 and then 3 John 1, where John calls himself presbyter or elder. Also Colossians 4.7, where Paul calls Tychicus, Tychicus, I don't know how to say these names, his fellow servant. Also Philippians 2.25, where Paul calls Epaphroditus, his fellow worker and fellow soldier, as well as the apostle of the Philippians. I think I nailed that name. Finally, 1 Corinthians 4.1 and 1.1, where Paul calls himself and Sosthenes servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Let's take a break right there. When we come back, we'll take a look at the witness of the church in its public confession regarding this second thesis. Thanks for listening to Cross Defense. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Cross Defense, my friends. we got a lot of text to cover, so let's get right back into Thesis 2, where we're discussing how the preaching office is not a human institution, but an office that God himself has established. We've already looked at the proofs from God's word. Now let's take a look at the public confession of the church, Augsburg Confession, Article 5, in order that we may obtain this faith, God established the preaching office office. So God's word says it, so Lutheran confessions say it. If God's word doesn't say it, we don't say it. That's how it works. And we get this too coming out of uh, Walther's volume here. This statement, of course, does not speak of the preaching office in concreto or of the pastoral office, but of the office in abstracto, of which Ludwig Hartmann among others, rightly reminds us in his pastoral theology, the ministry of the word may be treated in two ways. One, in an abstract way, inasmuch as the state itself and the office itself is subject to Christian consideration, as Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession treats it. And two, in a concrete way or in view of the persons who are found in the Holy Office. Article 14 of the Augsburg Confession treats it this way. So this appears also in Luther's Schwabach Articles, from which Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession, the Augustana, is taken. This reads, In order that we may obtain such faith or to grant it to, to us men, God has instituted the preaching office or the oral word, namely the gospel, through which he causes such faith with its, with its power, benefit, and fruit to be proclaimed, and through it, through it, as through his means, he also grants faith together with his Holy Spirit, how and where he wills. Otherwise, there is no method nor means, no way nor path to obtain faith. 
for all thoughts outside and before the oral proclamation, no matter how holy or good they seem to be, are nothing but lies and falsehoods. The Formula of Concord also touches on this, talking about the preached and heard word of God, as well as the smart, small called articles, easy for me to say, where we hear, according to John 20, 21, Christ sends forth his disciples alike to the preaching office without any distinction so that no one of them was to have more or less power than any other, since Paul then clearly testifies that he didn't even wish to ask Peter to let him preach even when he came to him for the last time, we have here a clear teaching that the preaching office stems from the common call of the apostles. All right, my friends, let's move on to thesis number three. If you're keeping track with me, hopefully you have this volume in front of you. If you don't, order it from CPH and then re-listen to this episode. <laughs> thesis three, the preaching office is not an optional office but one whose establishment has been commanded to the church and to which the church is properly bound till the end of time. Okay, so the proof from God's word regarding thesis three is coming from Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Thus says the Lord in this text, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. From these words, it's evident that the preaching office of the apostles, according to Christ's command, is to continue till the end of time. But if this is to take place, then the church must continuously establish the ordered public preaching office and in this order administer the means of grace till the end of the world. And so we get to the public confessions of the Lutheran Church. The, the church itself, the apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 13, quote, but if they want to call the sacrament of ordination a sacrament of the preaching office and gospel, we would not have any difficulty in calling ordination a sacrament, for the preaching office has been established by God, and it has his glorious promise. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, etc. Isaiah 55.11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Therefore, if anyone wants to understand the sacrament of ordination as a sacrament, one would also have to call the laying on of hands a sacrament. For the church has God's mandate to appoint preachers and deacons. Since then, it is so very comforting to know that God desires to preach and work through men and those chosen by men, it is proper to praise and honor highly this election, especially against the devilish Anabaptists who despise and blaspheme this election together with the preaching office and the physical word. And in the Augsburg Confession, we read here, this power of the keys and bishops is exercised and executed only by the teaching and preaching of God's word and the administration of the sacraments, either to many or to individuals, as the call demands. For by these means are given not bodily, but eternal blessings and gifts, namely everlasting righteousness, 
the Holy Spirit, and everlasting life. These gifts can be obtained in no other way than by the office of preaching and the administration of the sacraments alone. Here, the authority of the keys, which the church possesses and by which it administers the means of grace, is identified with the authority of the bishops, and to it, the obtaining of the eternal gifts is bound. But this is not because the eternal gifts of Christ's kingdom could in no wise be obtained without the administration of the means of grace by official persons in the office, but because God desires ordinarily to impart these gifts to men only in this way. It's the way God ordinarily chooses to work. Thesis four, the preaching office is not a special state in opposition to or holier than that of ordinary Christians, as was the Levitical priesthood. Rather, it's an office of service. Make sure you hear that rightly, saints. Your pastor doesn't hold some special office that's more holy than yours. No, it's not in opposition to you. No, it works in conjunction with you. We are all called into that priesthood of all believers. And from the priesthood, some are set apart to serve in this capacity. It doesn't make them more holy than you. It doesn't make them opposed to you. It makes them work with you. Proof from God's word. According to the clear word of God, all believing Christians, and they only are priests, a priestly state. All of us are like the Levitical priesthood. See 1 Peter 2.9, Revelation 1.6. We've talked about that already. There is among them no difference of status, none. They are all together one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26. They are all brothers, Matthew 23.8-12. But as in the Old Testament, all Sons of Aaron belonged to the priestly family and state, but still only some performed the office and service of a priest. So also in the New Testament, those who bear the public preaching office are not for that reason priests or priests before others, rather only those who minister among a priestly people. Therefore, the holy apostle writes, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos, their ministers, through whom you believed. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. Further, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For the sake of his body, which is the community of which I became a minister according to the divine preaching office that was given to me for you that I should generously preach the word of God. Colossians 1, 24 and 25. And now this is why, based on that, those verses, those texts, we as Lutherans, Orthodox Christians, this is why we say this. In the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, first article on misuse, says this, among other reasons why the layman should not receive both kinds, bread and wine and the Holy Supper, Gabriel Beale mentions also that there must be a distinction between priests and laymen. And I certainly believe that 
This is the greatest and most important reason why today the papists <laughs> might appear holier than that of the layman. Now this is the human thought, and its purpose can easily be judged. Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 3 on Misuse. In Greek, liturgia, the word that gives us liturgy, properly denotes an office by which one serves the community. This agrees nicely with our doctrine that there in the sacrament, the priest is a public servant of those who wish to commune, who serves them and administers to them the holy sacrament. So, you see in the difference there? The, the papists, the Roman Catholics, were confusing what a priest was with what a servant was in the Word of God. There's nothing that sets us apart and makes us more holy. We just have a different vocation. We have a different service. One that happens to be established by God himself. For the sake of the saints. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. But it's not a more holy thing. No, no, no. All right, moving on to thesis number, what was that, four? Going to five now. Thesis number five. The preaching office has the authority to preach the gospel and administer the holy sacraments as well as the authority of spiritual judgment. Okay. Tracking with me? Here we go. The proof from God's word. Don't just take Walther's word on it. Don't take my word on it. Definitely don't take some rando on TikTok's word on it. Go to Scripture. The proof from God's word. The Lord clearly and plainly shows the authority of the preaching office, which Christ instituted with the apostolate, when he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19-20. Further, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. John 20, 21 and 23. And further, further, <laughs> feed my lambs, tend my sheep. John 21, 15 and 16, right? This is the authority mentioned in the thesis above. Therefore, the holy apostle writes, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1. Mysteries, the sacraments. The word sacrament is just the Latinate word for the Greek word mysterios, right? We are stewards of the sacraments of God. We administer them according to the word of God. And now here's what our our public confession says, the witness of the church in its public confession, Augsburg Confession, what is this, article, we've got a bunch of Roman numerals here, 28. Now our adherents teach that the authority of the keys, or that of the bishops, is, according to the gospel, an authority and mandate of God to preach the gospel, forgive and retain sins, and administer and take care of the sacraments, the mysteries. For Christ sent his apostles with the mandate, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. John 20, 21 and 23, as we've said. This authority of the keys, or of the bishops, 
is exercised and administered only by teaching and preaching God's word and administering the sacraments, either to many or to one person, according to the call. Therefore, according to the divine right, it is the office of the bishops to preach the gospel, forgive sins, judge doctrine, and reject teachings that are contrary to the gospel, as well as to exclude from the Christian community, not by any human authority, but only through God's word. The wicked, whose perversity is manifest. And in such cases, the parishioners and churches owe obedience to the bishops, according to Christ's declaration in Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you, hears me. And from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 28, But what kind of office or authority the bishops have in the church, we have stated in the Augsburg Confession. The bishops, that is, those who now have the name of bishop in the church, they do not at all perform their Episcopal office according to the gospel, but they are allowed to be bishops according to the canonical polity, the value of which we do not contest. Remember, this is in, in the, uh, the debates between the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. So we're saying we're not contesting that point. The value of which we do not contest, but we speak of the true Christian bishops. And the old division or distinction pleases me very well, according to which it was said that the authority of the bishops consists in these two, the power of order, the power of jurisdiction, that is, the administration of the sacraments and the exercise of spiritual jurisdiction. Therefore, every Christian bishop has the power of order, that is, the power to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments, as well as the authority of spiritual jurisdiction in the church, that is, the power and authority to exclude from the Christian community those who are found guilty of open crimes, and again, to receive and absolve them when they repent. And in the small called articles, appendix on the Episcopal authority, we read in our Augsburg Confession and its apology, we have set forth in a general way what had to be said concerning the ecclesiastical authority. For the gospel command those who should preside over the churches to preach the gospel, forgive sins, and administer the sacraments. In addition, it confers on them the jurisdiction to excommunicate those whose vices are publicly known and to loose and absolve those who desire to make amends. Now, everyone, even our adversaries, must confess that this mandate is given alike to all who preside over the churches, whether they're called pastors or presbyters or bishops. Every pastor has these powers, as it's said, not just some pope. Yeah? All right, let's take a break right there, my friends. When we come back, we're going to look at Thesis 6 through 10 and uh, get back to our commenter mercedes and then send you on your way thanks for listening across the fence hello friends i'm pastor phil boo host of thy strong word 
Each weekday morning at 11 a.m., join me and a guest pastor as we explore God's Word, which strengthens our faith and guides our lives. You can listen over the air, online at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word, only from KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Getting into thesis number six from CFW Walther on the pastoral office. The preaching office is conferred by God through the congregation as the possessor of all ecclesiastical authority, or what we call the keys. And through the call, that one which is prescribed by God. The ordination of those who are called with the laying on of hands is not a divine institution, but an apostolic churchly order and only a solemn public confirmation of the call. Okay, so here's what God's word has to say about this. Why Walter would be able to say something like that, it's all based here on scripture. Since the congregation or church of Christ, that is the assembly of believers, has the keys and the priesthood immediately, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, 1 Peter 2, 5 to 10, following. Also, what has been said under, under part one of thesis four on the church, so it is also, and only it can be, that through which, namely, through the election, call, and sending, the preaching office, which publicly administers the office of the keys and all priestly offices in the congregation, is conferred to certain competent persons. That was a long and hard sentence to read, but I think you got the point. It's only bestowed upon certain competent persons through the church acting as God's instrument for this calling process. Therefore, we also read that the apostle Matthias himself was chosen for his high office, not merely by the 11, but by the whole multitude of believers gathered together, about 120 in number, Acts 1, 15 to 26. And further, we read that the deacons were also chosen by the whole multitude, Acts 6, 1 to 6. Hmm. All right. The entirety, if ministers of the church who administer the office already belong to the calling congregation, they also must certainly belong before all others to those calling by virtue of the office that they already bear in the church. Hence, when their cooperation, which is appropriate on account of their office, is denied, then the call of the, quote, multitude is not legitimate. For then, the call is extended not by the congregation, but by individuals in the congregation, which, when properly ordered, consists of both preachers and hearers. However, if no officiating ministers belong to the calling congregation, then indeed the call of the multitude is valid, even without the cooperation of the ministers. But in this case, it requires, one, the love and unity that according to Christ's will should exist and manifest itself among all members of his body. Two, the honor that believers owe to the faithful incumbents of the office. And three, the sacred character and importance of the matter itself, that a vacant congregation should not act alone according to its own discretion. But when it can... It should consult such. 
It should seek the counsel of available ministers of the church, listen to their advice and instruction, and concede to them, especially the examination and the proper public solemn installation of the called pastor. The pattern for this procedure is, among others, Acts 6, 1-6, which will serve the church as an example for all times. And so now, what we say in the Book of Concord, in the Apology, Article 7, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, baptism, etc., are not without efficacy or power because they're administered by unworthy or godless persons. For these are there by the call of the church, not as their own person, but as Christ, as Christ testifies. Luke 10, 16, do you get that? This is why you can be certain of the promises given to you through the means of grace, not because of the pastor himself by, by his own person, but because of the office. He's there by the call of the church and not to be himself. I'm not Tyrell to this church. I am the pastor. I'm here for them as Christ. Small called articles. Appendix on the power and primacy of the Pope. We read, in addition, it must be confessed that the keys belong and are given not merely to one man, but to the whole church, as this can be proved sufficiently by clear and definite arguments. For just as the promise of the gospel belongs definitely and immediately to the entire church, so the keys also belong immediately to the entire church, since the keys are nothing else than the office by which the promise is imparted to everyone who desires it. Just as it is actually manifest that the church has the power to ordain ministers of the church. Thus Christ says these words, whatever you bind, etc., Matthew 18, 18, indicating to whom the keys have been given, namely to the church. And Christ adds, where two or three are gathered together in my name, etc., Matthew 18, 20. Now the preaching office is bound to no definite place or person as the office of the Levites was bound by the law, but it is dispersed throughout the whole world and it is present wherever God grants his gifts of apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, etc. And again in the small called articles, appendix on the bishop's authority, wherever the church is, there also is the mandate to preach the gospel. Therefore, the churches must retain the authority to call, elect, and ordain ministers of the church. So let me inter- interrupt here for a second. You know, when I got a call here to, to Ferndale, the history I've heard is that there were uh, debates, conversations, discussions about whether to call a pastor with the, the funds they had, the monies they had, or to just uh, have lay preachers and, and then to take the money they had and, and invest it in other properties and rentals and, and investments and things like this. Now, that's not even up for debate. Wherever the church is, there also is the mandate to preach the gospel. And as we've heard, the preaching office, it belongs to the rightly called unordained pastor to do that preaching. Therefore, the churches must retain the authority to call, elect, and ordain ministers of the church. We're not an investment firm. (laughs) We're a church. 
and such authority is a gift that is granted to the church properly by God and that no human authority can rest, wrestle from it. As St. Paul attests in Ephesians 4.8 when he says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Among such gifts that belong to the church, he enumerates parish pastors and teachers and adds that they were given for the edification of the body of Christ. That's our purpose. From this, it follows that wherever there is true church, there is also the power to elect and ordain ministers. I'm going to Skip ahead a little bit because we're running out of time, guys. I want to get through all of these theses. If I don't get through all of our, our public confession based on them, well, then you'll have to forgive me on that, but we can get through the theses for sure. Um, let's see, where are we going? We're going to go to thesis number seven. The Holy Preaching Office is the authority conferred by God through the congregation as the possessor of the priesthood and of all churchly authority to exercise the rights of the spiritual priesthood in public office on behalf of the congregation. And here's what the proof of God's word says. We have shown in Theses 1 through 4 on the office that the spiritual priesthood which all true believing Christians possess and the preaching office or the parish pastoral office are not one and the same thing according to God's word. Neither is an ordinary Christian a parish pastor because he is a spiritual priest, nor is a pastor also a priest because he holds the public preaching office. Neither is the spiritual priesthood a public office in the church, nor is the public preaching office a special status or a special stand different from that of all Christians. Rather, it is an office of service nevertheless established by Christ himself when he instituted the apostolic office. Further, as we've shown in Thesis 5 on the office, preachers on behalf of the fellowship publicly administer the office, which originally the church as the true royal priestly generation and also every true believing Christian possess. And finally, in Thesis 6 on the office, We've shown that preachers receive their office and authority from God through the congregation as the one that possessed them originally and through which the call required by God is conferred. Therefore, the preaching office cannot essentially be anything other than the authority conferred by God through the congregation as the possessor of the priesthood and of all church authority to exercise in public office the rights of the spiritual priesthood on behalf of the fellowship. A proof from God's word has already been given under thesis four and in thesis seven of the first part on the church and under thesis one, four, five, and six of the second part on the office. Okay, so here I may only remind the reader that Holy Scripture presents the church, that is the believers, as the bride of the Lord and as the mistress of the household to whom the keys have been entrusted, and with them the right of and access to all rooms, sacred things, and treasures of the house. Ooh, that'll excite your imagination, right? The house of God, as well as the authority to appoint stewards over these. According to the Holy Scripture, every true Christian is a spiritual priest, and therefore is entitled and called not only to use the means of grace for himself, but also to impart them to those who as yet do not have them and therefore also do not possess them 
possess with him the rights of the priesthood. However, in the place where all possess the rights, no one may exalt himself over the others or exercise them over against the others. But in all places where Christians live together, the rights of the priesthood are to be administered publicly on behalf of the fellowship only by those who have been called by the fellowship in the manner prescribed by God. Therefore, in God's word, the incumbents of the public preaching office within the church are called not only ministers and stewards of God, but also ministers and stewards of the church or congregation. Mm, good stuff. Going to have to skip forward. We're skipping over the uh, public confession part, going to thesis eight. The preaching office is the highest office in the church from which flow all other offices in the church. And this is what made me think about these theses for today's topic of pastor relating to and distinctly different from lay leaders in our congregations. And here we read, proof from God's word, since the bearers of the public preaching office have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which the church possesses originally and immediately, Matthew 16, 19 and 18, 18, in order that they may administer them in the public office on behalf of that fellowship, John 20, 21 to 23, their office must of necessity be the highest in the church and all other offices flow from it. For the keys embrace the whole authority of the church. Therefore, in Scripture, the bearers of that office are called presbyters, bishops, rulers, stewards, and the like. And the bearers of a subordinate office are called deacons, that is, ministers, not only of God, but also of the congregation and of the bishop. Of these latter, in particular, it is said that they should feed the flock of God and watch over souls as those who, tr who must give account. 1 Timothy 3, 1, 5, 7, 5, 17, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, Titus 1, 7, and Hebrews 13, 17. Hence, at Jerusalem, the holy apostles in the beginning administered not only the preaching office, but also the office of deacon until the growth of the congregation demanded that this office should be conferred on particular persons in order to support the first office, that is, the preaching office, Acts 6, 1-6. When the Lord instituted the apostolate, he instituted only one office in the church, which embraces all offices of the church, and by which the congregation of God should be cared for in every respect. Hence, the highest office is that of the preaching office with which all other offices are also conferred at the same time. Every other public office in the church is part of the same, or a helping office, that stands at the side of the preaching office, whether it be the office of elder, possessors of which do not labor in the word and doctrine, 1 Timothy 5.17, or the ruling office, Romans 12.8, or the diaconate, the office of service in a narrow sense, or, or whatever other offices the church may entrust to particular persons for special administration. Therefore, the offices of Christian day school teachers who have to teach the word of God in their schools, distributors of alms, sextons, uh, presenters at public worship, and others, they're all to be regarded as churchly holy offices which bear a part of the one church office and stand at the side of preaching office. Stand beside it. 
So, my friends, as you enter into these offices, if indeed you are entering into one of these offices, don't enter into it as opposed to your pastor. Don't let your spirit get haughty. and Don't get in contest with him. Pastors, make sure to guard your hearts and not be abusive in your role, but only speak that which God's word says. And do so with the utmost respect for your hearers and for those who are serving alongside of you. It is a great joy to partner with each other in this role and in this way. Okay, moving on to thesis number nine. Are we on nine or eight? You guys tell me. I think we're on nine. That's right. To the preaching office, there is due respect as well as unconditional obedience when the preacher uses God's word. Yet the preacher has no dominion in the church. Therefore, he has no right to introduce new laws or arbitrarily to establish adiaphora or ceremonies, you know, contemporary worship, in the church. The preacher has no right to inflict and carry out excommunication alone without preceding knowledge of the whole congregation. Proof from God's word, Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Or how about Hebrews 13, 17? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How about 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13? We ask you, that brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. How about 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 19? Let the presbyters who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborers deserve his wages. Matthew 10, 12 to 15, as you enter in the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. When you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It was ambitious, to say the least, to try to squeeze all 10 of these theses into a one-hour show, but let's see if we can get it done. You can tell I'm moving pretty quickly to get through here, skimming over a lot of content. But here's the thesis, last one, to the preaching office, according to the divine right, belongs also the office to judge doctrine. But laymen also possess this right. Therefore, in the ecclesiastical courts and councils, they are accorded both a seat and a vote together with the preachers. So both lay people and preachers are making decisions one with another, working as a team, not against each other. And if that wasn't enough, we got to squeeze in my reply to Mercedes. Mercedes wrote, regarding your Christian man in the arena, you forgot to mention 1 Peter 3.15 with meekness and fear or with gentleness and respect. Mercedes, given the context of the November 25th, 2023 show, why did you, dear saint, let's say forget to quote the first part of 1 Peter 3.15 or even verse 14 or actually the entire context from verse 8 to 17 when you want to focus in on gentleness and respect? In other words, 
Why was your reaction to a message of encouragement toward strength, which was focused on being willing to leave people worse than they were before in the name of the gospel for the sake of Christ Jesus to save them, understood properly as the presentation of the law and the gospel of God's word in relation to those who are rejecting Christ and, to, and who deny their sin. Why did you meet that message with, oh, but don't forget to be gentle and respectful? Did my teaching at all instruct anyone to be less than Christian in their bold confession, in their conversation? No, that would be oxymoronic. My experience as a pastor called and sent to preach and teach the word of God to American Christians in our day and age is that we take gentleness and respect as escape hatches to avoid divisive words of truth. I got to be gentle and respectful. So my, my Thanksgiving greeting to my family, well, it's got it's to avoid anything about Jesus. Hold on. Uh, what, what can I text out to my family that's not going to be uh, ooh, anything more than gentle and respectful? Oh, I got it. I got it. Uh, go Cowboys. See the problem? See why I focused on what I did? See, Mercedes, I didn't forget to mention to act like a Christian because that's what we're already doing. We're already behaving like that way as far as gentleness and respect go. The Christians I know that I serve are gentle and, and they are respectful. They exercise their respect so much so that it's almost to a fault, to such a fault that the unrepentant sinner never actually has to confront reality. We take gentleness and respect as permission to never speak truth. We got a handle on gentle and respect. We, we, we definitely got that down, sister. It's 1 Peter 3, 14 and the beginning of 15 that we need to be encouraged in as I see it and as I conveyed it in last week's episode. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that, my friends, today is the show. I'll talk to you next week. Godspeed. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org.